Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast, recorded in Mexico for the International AIDS Society 2019 conference. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast where we explore issues in health and human rights. And I'm joined in our second special episode with Yvette Raphael, my co-host. Good evening, Rafa- uh, Yvette. <laughs> Good evening, Ben. <laughs> and our very, very special guest, A. Tony Young. Tony is with Community Education Research. Yeah? Close enough. Sorry, what should I say? Community Education Group. Community Education Group, but I'm always feeling that there's research. There's always research. We do do community participatory practice research, so that's close enough. Thank you. So, on tonight's show, we're going to talk about the data that's come out of the IAS 2019, um, and particularly the stuff that affects uh, women and people of color. And I just wanted to know, to kick it off, what you thought were the big things that you you saw today. And Yvette, I don't know if you want to kick it off. Yeah, I mean, for myself, been most exciting was the issue around and the press conferences. I attended both con- press conferences, the one on the ECHO trial and the Dolatagravia uh, press conference. Exciting news coming out of there. And just to show that with the power of women and how that a Dolotegravia announcement by WHO and that press conference driven by women changed the landscape for for a, a, a HIV and uh, treatment in the world. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I, I went to Dr. Fauci's talk today, and, uh, and I think one of the things that I found exciting, and I also went to uh, Dr. Lewin's talk today about HIV cure research, and I, I come back to the same thing over and over again when I come to IAS, and that's the role of communities of color and the role of women in research overall. And here we are nearly 40 years later, and we still are concerned about the role that communities of color and women play. Our numbers are low, whether we're looking at women domestically from the United States or looking at it globally, that's our challenge, no matter the study. Uh, and it's who are the scientists, who are the administrators of these projects, and then ultimately who are the participants in these studies. So I think it doesn't matter what the study is. It's we've got to increase the participation of women and communities of color in all stages of research. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and, and I suppose that's a really excellent entry point to talking about the, the data that was presented on ECHO. Um, and Yvette, don't kill me, but if I summarize it correctly, what we what we really learned today is, okay, we knew that um, contraceptives don't affect um, and don't make it easier for women to acquire HIV. But the study groups showed that the rates of HIV were very, very high in these groups of women who were participating in the trials. And so the question is, are we failing them in our research uh, strategies? Uh, yeah, definitely, as Tony was saying, is ultimately who's the participants and also who are the researchers. Although we try in South Africa, which is one of the countries where most of this research is happening, is uh, what we've seen with, with the, the number of women uh, who seroconverted during the trial, the new infections, it was scary. It is, it is actually higher than what we thought. And most of those infections happened in my country in South Africa. And it's worrying for us. What are we not doing right? And I don't 
think we can expect anything to change as long as we do not put a focus on young women and women and also ensuring that we get science to focus on a method that will work for women and that can they can use uh, to prevent HIV. And we, we know we have PrEP, we know we have male condoms, but still those were in, in, in the study and still the numbers were that high. So there's something we're missing and that might, and I, I say this all the time, that is probably the structural drivers around HIV and AIDS and why women are not accessing these uh, services. Right. And I, I mean, I think that that's what, what we do is that we, we come up with a study like this, but we, and we make an assumption that, that it's a woman that is making these, these decisions around sexual, uh, the sexual drivers in her relationship. Men still have a very much control in, in the sexual relationship in the sexual prevention of who, where the condom gets used, when condom, when lovemaking is going to occur. So we, we say, well, here's this trial, here's this tool that you can use, but the male is still dominant in this sexual relationship. So mm. that, that, that kind of, how, how are we bringing him into this discourse around when this tool is going to be used, how it's going to be used? We say it's a women's controlled method, but it isn't necessarily mm. because we don't particularly bring in heterosexual men into these trials. And yeah. we must do this. And it's not anti-feminist to say that we must have conversation with the men that these women have sex with. But look, here's my, here's my concern. We've got a trial where, in theory, the women participating are being really well looked after, right? They should then know they're participating in a clinical trial about the effectiveness of contraceptives in HIV. And, and yet the rates of infection are so high. And, um, and so what is your gut telling you? I mean, I'm asking what your <laughs> gut is telling you in a medical conference. Yes. But, but why is that? And, and important, I want to pick up on what Tony was saying earlier around bringing in the male. And in the study in South Africa, and it was presented today, that there was that opportunity to bring in the male partner. And that uptake was very, very low. So it, it, it still shows that male, the, the male or heterosexual male is fearful of the system, fearful of going to, to access healthcare. So we we almost getting to that point where it, it's becoming almost hopeless. Today, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit emotional because uh, my friend was, uh, you know, on the panel for, for, for the DTG study, but also just to hear how powerful women are and, and how we, we put ourselves out there in these studies and the males do not come along with us and for whatever reason that is. And the system doesn't go along with us because we continue to be so, so, so disadvantaged in this in, in, in de decision-making and how we can actually direct our lives. So it's a really naive question coming from, from someone like me, but even after 40 years of this, how do we change that? I mean, all of us here at this conference are here committed to ending the AIDS epidemic. Are but we committed? Are we? Um, that's a question <laughs> that I want to ask. Are we really that committed? Are we really focusing? Are we now going to an extent to 
focus on that woman and and focus on this woman is just not a number it's a mother it's a sister it's a sibling it's a oh, a wife and but the, it's just this one person that we all need to focus on so for me i i do not think we we we're doing enough for women we in all her life we we're not doing enough because if we could if we did we would have had some kind of method that would that a woman would be able to control but and i don't know if it's necessarily that it's just that the woman would be able to control that we would actually understand the sexual behavior of women and we would understand that women have sex with men and we would understand that we then need to have conversations with men and that if we're not going to be able to at some point engage men particularly black men in the US particularly african men what's the dialogue that we need to have with them to be able to engage them in hiv prevention not just in a biomedical context but in a prevention education context because if you're going to put women into a study and say okay we're going to give you a biomedical response but we're not going to give you any prevention education to give to your male partner but we know what the what the social and behavioral patterns are in your community but we're not going to address that at all we're going to that is all going to continue to happen but we're going to now just give you this biomedical response and say we're not going to address any of that i think that we we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that we think something else is going to change and it and it doesn't if we if we look at i believe prep uptake in the united states amongst black women i think people say well if we have prep why why aren't black women uptaking prep mm-hmm. it would make common sense that well black women would uptake this thing well i don't think that we're having the appropriate conversation we we don't have a conversation with black men about prep we have a black we don't have a conversation with black men about hiv mm-hmm. We don't have a conversation with black heterosexual men typically. We have a conversation with black gay men or men who have sex with men. But we've we've got these studies and we're we're talking about some of the data that's coming out of Echo at the moment which is telling us that our prevention work is failing. How do we turn the ship around? I mean so so here are the problems. What should we be doing? zoom in on the woman focus on the woman and her environment uh, we talk about the I, i always talk about the the politics of the black bedroom for a black woman it's not as simple as that when and how and uh, how many times i have sex and when how many babies i have it's not just dependent on me i can say i want to have one baby but my family's expectation is you have an opportunity to increase this lineage and you're supposed to have 10 babies or you're supposed to not have babies at this uh, juncture in your life or later mm. or, or very early so i think we need to it's not only social and behavioral but it's also focusing on this woman who and let her tell the story allow her to be the designer of these studies sometimes on how what we want to get out of the studies but i think we're not doing that so until we focus on on the woman and the young woman and yeah if from between leaving home and going to school what are the things that you encounter young people in south africa leave home but never get, see the gate of of their school classroom or the door of a classroom because in between you and often in between 
getting to school, um, a man sees you as an opportunity because you don't have a, a family uh, structure, you, you're vulnerable, you're probably hungry, and they pry on you. And so it's, it's, it's bigger than that. We need to just get back and zoom into those young people and the women themselves. And, and, I, and I really know that you want to go back to this study specifically because we're here at the scientific conference. But I believe that it is at scientific conferences like this, like IAS, that if we don't figure out how to marry the behavioral and social sciences with the basic sciences, that we will continue to have the access challenges mm. that we're seeing come home to roost. I think our basic scientists sometimes forget that the, the implementation science is where the rubber meets the road. That's right. I mean, f for me, the science is really useful um, milestones. It tells us how we might get to places. Um, and, and I think the majority, I think probably all the scientists I've ever met have mm -hmm. always been absolutely passionate about eliminating this virus. But, but something is going wrong where we get data and we don't know how to implement it. And it begs the question, well, why didn't we think about implementation earlier? But can we do so in an environment where our clinical trial is saying, look, let's just prove that this particular intervention works. Let's not do anything until we have proven that fact. And I think that's failing us. Absolutely. I mean, so in his talk today, Dr. Fauci had these... Uh, two toolkits uh, that are basically going to get us to the, the elimination of HIV. And, you know, it's part of it's biomedical and part of it's behavioral. Uh, part of it's a vaccine and part of it is going to be uh, other biomedical and behavioral approaches. But the question is, are we all ready and are we all kind of going down the same path to get us there? And, that, and I think that's what we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to take things out of each of these various toolkits to get to the, the end? And are we all asking ourselves, the, seeing the end in the same way? I think some people are seeing the end as a vaccine. Some people are seeing the end as a cure. Some are seeing the end as... Uh, a one-a-day pill. Some are seeing it as, a, as an injectable. But it could be all of those things. Exactly. It's a, it's a, big, it's a big toolbox. And, and we're living, I, I think we're living in one of the best possible times where we have all of these options. Mm -hmm. We're just using, not using them. But, uh, but Yvette, let's talk about the Dolutegravir results that came out today. Um, because that's something I know was a real buzz on the street, if you like, in the conference, that last year, you know, we had what seemed like a signal from Botswana that uh, dolitegravir use was uh, bringing about neural tube defects in kids, uh, in, in unborn babies, sorry. Um, and, and this year, at this conference, data was presented suggesting, well, maybe that signal isn't there. Um, and what was interesting for me is that the WHO were right on that with guidelines immediately saying, okay, let's put dolutegravir, you know, clearly into first line without any of these concerns. What did you make of all of this? 
<laughs> you know, Ben, uh, when when we talk about the, what happened with Dollar Tegrivia and and the from last year and 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 the rumors and the Botswana studies, it, it's clear that as communities, while we're trying to understand the science and befriend the scientists, and I mean communities are at this conference forcing some ensuring and paying for themselves to come. But what we are missing is in, uh, in science is missing is in sensitizing and educating the governments, uh, the policymakers in, in, in some of these countries. So the fear when, when that study so small came out in Botswana, our governments jumped and said, whoa, 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 what is this? What does it mean? And immediately they start put that fear in, in, in something that could actually be life-changing for, for, for women, you know, and, and put that fear and all the governments and the effect thereof was the women understood, the activists understood, the scientists on the ground understood and continued to fight to say, okay, we want more evidence. You, you, you mentioned it. We want more evidence. We want evidence that proves this happened. But what it really proves is that we need to ensure that we give women folic acid mm. during pregnancy and ensure that they have access to it. But I, I, I want to commend the women, the women in Kenya. I mean, Jackie Vambui, who's a great friend of mine, who was pushing for this and to ensure that a drug that she might not even be able to mm. access is available for women. So for me, and, and women can use, and I always say, we, 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 we're part of the studies and when the products become available, then suddenly, wow, it doesn't work for women. And we did not want this to happen with Dolatagravia yeah. and the women were on it to say, if it works for men, it should work for women. And if there is something around uh, entities, we want to know for sure that that's the case. And I, I commend the activists. So there are two things for me that come out of this. One, which I think is a broader discussion, we'll come back to around how we design trials okay. that involve people who are actually most affected by the virus. But the second thing, and I, I think it's just worth noting on, and I'd really welcome your thoughts on this, Tony, the WHO responded quickly. And last year there was a... Um, uh, a note of caution. And this year, WHO has been very clear that we're responding to the data and the guidance is now clear and Dolutegravir is, is now back up there, you know, clearly commended as first line. Um, and how did we get that right this time? How did WHO get this right? <laughs> Uh, it's not WHO. It's the pressure from women and, and the pressure from women in Africa. And we saw that again with, with the ECHO trial. Once, while we were preparing for the result, women started looking at the process. Where are we going after the result? And said immediately to WHO, we know the guideline reviews are going to come, uh, is going to be next. It takes, you guys usually take, uh, take up to a year. We want you to act within three months. And it's the same thing that happened with DTG is that the women said to them, we want you to follow the signs and ensure the minute the science gives us a indication that th that's not a fact, you really put a new uh, mm. guideline onto DTG. And it's, it's, it's advocacy. There's an Afro cab that was actually uh, started to ensure that we hold and women hold WHO accountable, yeah. hold countries accountable, and also hold the scientists accountable. Mm. I, yeah, and, and Tony, you had a pre-conference -pre meeting yes. 
looking at prevention technology and, and the cure. And we're not talking about the 1980s band here, I should <laughs> hasten to add. Um, so what came out of that? Um, what do you think are the key lessons for us? I, you know, as we, um, you know, we did, we had a two-day conference here at CNE here in Mexico City, um, and we had uh, over 300 people participate, which was amazing, um, particularly because uh, the IES conference is a, it's expensive, and so we wanted an opportunity for for local Mexican citizens to be able to engage with both the local government, particularly because. Um, they are going to be moving to a one-a-day pill for the first time, which kind of in 2019, you think, well, that's different, um, but not. Um, but we wanted to give the community opportunity to talk about that and what does that mean, because I think that can be scary for people to get a new treatment regimen all of a sudden and kind of how that's going to roll out in a country. Um, so we talked about that. We also wanted to talk about HIV cure because C&E uh, is a part of the Martin Delaney Collaboratory. Um, and it gave po- people an opportunity to talk about what an HIV cure is, what it isn't. Uh, and for us, it also gave us an opportunity to talk about community engagement strategies. Mm. And you know, one, uh, Mexico doesn't talk a lot about PrEP because PrEP's not available here uh, for, for the most part, particularly given how it's paid for and not paid for by the state. So. What do you think the scientists here at uh, IAS 2019, plus the policymakers, what should they be doing? How should they be listening to activists? What should, what, uh, Yvette, you said yesterday to me as we were preparing that, you know, it, this should be about what do we expect to hear? Not whether we will hear it, but what do we expect to hear and what should we what should scientists be listening from us? So how would you, how would you comment on that? I, you know, I, I think one of the biggest lessons I got out of the two days is that, number one, is that uh, big pharma's not the enemy, the government's not the enemy, that we really have to remember that HIV is still the enemy. That's number one, number one. And number two is that, that there's a continuum And we've got to remember that there's something before biomedical prevention. There's just prevention. And we've got to also continue to educate people with things like condom education and interventions. And they, because those interventions still do work. And we heard a lot from people in the community here about what do we do with an adolescent? How do we talk to teenagers? And we need to still be in community doing that, but they need the resources to do that. And before we get to getting people on treatment, we need to make sure that we're in community being able to do that in very specific ways, but also that we need to make sure people have jobs and houses and these things are related to HIV in a very real way. But as we... But you see, this gets to me, this feels very heartbreaking because these are fundamental problems with society that we have to deal with while we're also dealing with the continued state of emergency that is HIV. And and so how realistically can we change all of these things while stopping HIV in its tracks and stopping it particularly in this instance 
for African women who are of reproductive age? Uh, I think uh, just to your previous question and my input is, it's, it's time that the scientists get to understand that they're not designing these products to go into a journal. They're not designing, they're not doing studies for, you know, to go into libraries and to be recognized that when they go into a community and do a study, they create an expectation to say, okay, I put my life out there. I, I risk everything. I put myself to be a change in, in science. So what I expect from the scientists, and, and I want to give credit where it's due mm. because I, I walked around in the community, in, in the conference halls today, and I, I could see there was that, you know, that spur of increased community on the panels, uh, people being sensitive of having just males, which is uh, white males on a panel, <laughs> and being sensitive of only having, you know, one gender or people from the global south forgetting the uh, the women on the ground. So I, um, I, I want to give credit. Mm. And I was saying yesterday to, to friends at, that we need to actually be very proud of ourselves. We, I think we're too hard on ourselves mm -hmm. as people who've been through so much with HIV that actually we HIV activists pushed the envelope to such an extent that we saw the change. Uh, I mean, the director, the executive director of NIH, big up to him for refusing to speak anywhere where there's no woman on a panel. Mm. So we need to take it, push it a little bit further. Say Ben will not speak if there is no black women on a panel or if we're discussing issues around black women and they are not on the table. So I think for me that's a big up and I want to give that mm. to, to scientists for evolving. But also to, to say, uh, you know, at this juncture we expect more. We, yeah. uh, there's no way we can go to Mars and, and colonize Mars, but we cannot find a cure for HIV. Come on. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, HIV, I think you've both heard me say this, to my mind is, you know, the single greatest health challenge of our generation. It is like Ebola, except it moves, you know, the, the symptoms don't appear so rapidly, but it is it is so infectious and it has the potential really to, to disrupt and, and um, undermine societies. Do you know, I was in a session today for Friends of the Global Fight, which is a US-based US uh, advocacy group based in Washington who um, are encouraging private sector organization companies to get more involved in the fight against AIDS, particularly advocacy with the US government, <clears throat> which is a thing in itself. But Marika Windrooks, who is the chief of staff of the Global Fund, said that she remembered back in 2000 when she was working for the Dutch government that their job then was to invest in organizations that could help uh, women write memory books so that when they passed, when I they died... I was part of that. I oh, had a memory book. I'm oh. keeping it as a memory. <laughs> but how things have changed. It's, it should, it can be one pill a day. Mm -hmm. That's a dramatic transformation, right? Yes. Yes and no, right? Because I, you know, I have uh, always said that also that I believe that HIV and AIDS also is a mirror into our souls because it brings up all of our isms and schisms across the globe. It shows us our racism, our classism, our homophobia no matter where it is in the world. 
HIV shows us what we, we think of one another. And that, unfortunately, is still true. It shows us what we think of the least of us. And I think when we look around the globe and we see how we treat the least of us, we still see that in HIV. Um, so when, you, when we talk about the, what, would we, what would I say to, to scientists, I would say that, yes, we, we've come a long way in our treatment, and, but we've not come a long way in our treatment of one another. Right. <clears throat> so HIV is a, a, a mirror to our soul. And, you know, the way we treat the least of us, uh, I don't know, that's not the right phrase. What did you say? The way we treat... I don't know. I ah. Well, the point being, everybody, everybody, regardless, and HIV has forced us to ask some really difficult questions about how we think about ourselves and society. Yeah, and, and, and I want to, again, just pat ourselves on the back. You, you mentioned the issue of when we started and how we were taught survival by making uh, these books, mm. memory books memory for our books. kids. Mm. And I think that is one of the things that at that time, because it suited a certain, you talk about classism and racism, it suited a, a, a certain, the scientists, the white scientists from the South coming to teach us how to manage and to cope. And that was for me the mo one of the most painful, painful parts is that in my culture, we don't prepare to die. And the, the people who came there in our groups, in our support groups, making us sit down and take cut pictures of ourselves, don't know what that meant for us as people. I still do not take lightly preparing for my kids' future because I don't see myself out of that future as a black woman. And we talk about all of that and understanding who we're working with. So for me, those were the painful times. And how we survived then as HIV positive women in South Africa is we learned to prepare how to live. So all of that time, and you know the World Cup was coming. So for me, it was a big time. When we were doing the memory books, I was writing the IBOS diagnosis in 2000. And in 20, uh, and when the announcement came, one of the things that I was putting in my memory book is I will be there yeah. when Philip comes. We used to call, uh, call the World Cup, Philip is coming, but we had a slang word about Philip. When Philip is coming, I need neither to be there. And that is just about... I mentioned the sensitization and being sensitive to the people that you think you're trying to help. That, that was a very painful and triggering uh, yeah, program or in, 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 yeah, interference in something mm. so personal by people who did not understand blackness. That was hard for us to prepare to die. We were well, making it's, books it's, for our kids to read. Yeah, well, it's, so it's hard for me to say this, but you go back... 10 years, where are we, 2000? Go back to 1990 or the, the mid-80s. So gay men in large cities in the United States, in London, while not making memory books for their kids, were certainly having to design their funerals. And these were going to be huge statements about uh, their impact on the world and what happened after they, after they left. 
And, and so I see great similarities. I remember hearing about preparing for the World Cup as something people were gonna, gonna live through. Um, but here we are, 2019, and if you can afford to take it, and if your health systems are there, you can live with HIV. There is treatment. And the key word in that phrase is if, right? So, but I, if I am, depending on where I am and who I am in the world, I don't have access to those same systems. And that's the craziness of, of this disease is that I can be in, I can be a black woman in New York and still not have the same access as the white man in New York, or I can be across the sea and not have the same access, and it's still there. So that's why I say that's the, the kind of the, the beauty of HIV is that it has given us all of these fantastic options. You know, I mean, I lost my best friend, which is why I ended up here doing the work that I do. But if, I, if he would have lived another year and a half, he probably would still be here, yeah. right? But he's not. But the reality is, depending on who he was or what he was, he may today be living a completely yeah. different life. Yeah, I, I, woman versus man, black versus white. This is still true in 2019. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, it, it speaks about our resilience. And uh, funny, it is the theme of the 2020 um, AIDS conf uh, International AIDS Conference They're happening in San Francisco. So for me... And Oakland. In, uh, oh, Oakland, San Francisco. Thank you. Both. <laughs> but it, it, for, for me, it's, it's us showing the resilience of... of Instead of you, uh, Tony, just being despondent, you said, okay, my friend died of this disease. I'm going to fight so that another black person doesn't lose a friend like me. Uh, you, no, he <laughs> no, I mean, my, my, you know, my story is my best friend was a gay white man who had more money than anybody had ever known in my life. Mm. And when he got sick, he looked me square in the eye and he said, one day this disease is going to look more like you than me. Stop working for people that look like me. Go work for people that look like you. Mm -hmm. And he was right. Mm. Yeah. And that was my, my first experience in 89. It was not with the uh, London gay community. It was with uh, refugees from Uganda, from from East Africa who were coming to the UK um, because of the Civil War. And lo and behold, these were mothers and kids and they were living with HIV. Mm -hmm. So we've got to accept that we've, and, and rejoice in the fact that we've come a long, long way from those, those bleak days. And here we are in Mexico in 2019 Celebrating, frankly, that a drug still so young in its development, dolutegravir, has, has bowed to the resilience and pressure of women, particularly women from Africa. And so what do we think should be, should be the challenges going forward? What do we want the scientists to hear from us now? 
<laughs> Most definitely, I, I think is is to to put women at the center for me is, is is important because we carry the burden of HIV and AIDS. Put women at the center, and I also watch how you how you then give this drug to women. Watch and ensure that they do take it. We know all of these methods only work if you if you take them. So for me, is well, the scientists need to understand that although it's one pill, people talk about oh the pill burden is away, all of those things, but the structural issues still will impact and that woman who would not be able to take that. Well, one and pill. listen to the language you used. We give mm. the woman. The woman takes rather than this is my treatment. This is my choice. Right, and I think that the the most important thing that scientists should take away from this conference as as we move forward is that we have to put the relationship between the behavioral and the basic scientists on similar tracks, that they they work in an intersectional way, and that we have to include both women and men in parallel tracks of science. I know it costs more, and we have to build in those costs into the research. Well, that brings us to funding, doesn't it always? I mean, that's really uh, the big white elephant in the room. Um, you know, are we going to invest enough to be able to do all of these things? But tell me, uh, tell me about what happened when you were walking up and down the conference hall today. What were some of the things that you heard that, that struck, amused you or irritated the hell out of you? I, I have to say... What amused me and what made me happy is that I saw at least 20 people that I've known for over two decades um, that still had pep in their step, that still had um, sparkle in their eye and passion in their voice, and that I knew that they were truly, truly believing that they had the answer or on the path to the mm-hmm. answer. Um, and I always get a little tear in my eye when, when I think about it. But one of those people is Dr. Fauci. Mm. And, I, and when I hear him and when I know that he, he believes it, when I know that he really believes it, it always gives me a little something to fight another yeah. day. Yeah. And, and when I know that he's out there to fight another day, then he's one of the good guys. Yeah. Him and, him and, Carl, him and yeah. Carl Diefenbach. And, I, and I'm literally tearing up because I know that we fight, we'll argue with them on policy and on principle, and I'll probably argue with them again another day. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I, but I know those two guys are in the fight. For all the yeah. right reasons. And I think you've given us the title of this episode, Pep in Our Step. <laughs> <laughs> but Yvette, for you. Yes, so after the, the, the two uh, press briefings and the sessions that I attended, I went to, to make a turn in, in, in the um, lounge. And it was, again, very beautiful to see the people that I been working with for so long, Jim Pinkett, uh, Mark Hubbard, and I went past cross over to the other side of the posters. I'm like, okay, I'm going to just 
pretend all of this. I'm in an art gallery. I'm mm-hmm. beautiful. I'm a black woman. Yeah. I'm just going to look here and and read through all of these posters. And Linda Gale Becker called me over to her poster. And she said, I want you to come and stand here and let me explain to you what is happening at Marcy with PrEP and young women. And like you, I get goosebumps when I talk about commitment from LGB and how she, you know, uh, she personalizes us as the women, as the community, they know us. When you spoke about the two doctors, I could feel that they know you, they would not pass you. And that is what science needs to learn, is that watch the space. I am a human being. And when you speak over there, I remember you. I will remember your study. I will remember where you come from, where you did it. And that's what some of the scientists don't do. And for me, the happy part is when I stood there and spoke to Linda Gelbecker about my life, about my love life, mm-hmm. and her talking mm-hmm. about how PrEP is changing and young women will be able to have or have shown to, to be able to yeah. take a PrEP in her, uh, in her work. And how she's, she's also challenging the, you know, the systems where they say you should only provide it to a certain uh, population. And she says, Yvette, I cannot turn back a young man. Yvette, I cannot turn back a heterosexual man who wants this or an older woman than what is in the study. So for me, those are our allies and those are more than allies, just our friends. Well, well, this is really interesting and a fascinating way for us to wrap up this episode is that having bemoaned the state of science and the way that science treats us as communities, here we are tearing up about you know, Tony Fauci, Linda Gale Becker, scientists and researchers that, that really are at the forefront of this fight. So, Tony, thank you so much for coming onto the couch and for being with us tonight. Yes. And Yvette, thank you as ever. And well, that's it for this episode of A Shot in the Arm podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Um, You can subscribe to us wherever you uh, purvey your podcasts. And I hope you're enjoying the video of us on YouTube. So with that, thank you all very much. You guys, you are a shot in the arm. Mandla. Thank you.